This is Carol Hoxbergen, founder of Hoxie's Native Seeds, and I'm very proud to be the sponsor of the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. In 1945, this was 63 cents. In 2019, this was $3.04. And in 2023, this was $4.27. Can any of you guys guess what price I am talking about? I'll give you a minute. If you guessed a gallon of milk, you are correct. This is the price, average price of a gallon of milk in the United States at these times. Now, it can seem like it's getting way more expensive, but it's actually getting way cheaper. Let's go to hourly wages. In 1945, the average hourly wage was 75 cents. That means... It took four, oh, over 50 minutes. It took over 50 minutes to buy a gallon of milk for the average income. In 2019, the average income was $19.33, which means it took about 11 minutes of work to buy a gallon of milk. And in 2023, the average income was $21 an hour. And that is actually an increase from 2019. 12 minutes and 12 and a half minutes roughly to buy a gallon of milk. I kind of did that math in my head. So let's hope it's fairly accurate. The point is that even though we've had a little jump the past few years, the price of milk is going way, way down in terms of your hourly wage, how much, how much output you have to give in order to get a gallon of milk. Why in the world does this matter? Well, admittedly, these milk prices jumping from 2019 to 2023 aren't that big of a deal for my wife and I. Our grocery bill went from $75 a week to about $95 a week in the past year. And again, that's not that big of a deal for us. It's just eating out a couple times less a month. And honestly, we don't even do that. We just splurge a little less. You know, we have less spending money when we go to Walmart or the mall or are perusing through Amazon. Um, but a, a 25% or 15, even just like a 10% jump in food price for other people could actually be a huge deal. Because I think sometimes we forget that in America, we are in the land of opportunity. We, we think it's the land of getting what we want. So we forget what the great privilege is of just having a place of opportunity for spiritual or economic or relational wealth and growth. And I understand not everyone's going to be wealthy and not everyone's going to grow. The point is that we have the chance to. And I know I know there's a lot of debate on that, but but bear with me as we start comparing the United States to other places. Most of mankind for thousands and thousands of years have lived in situations where your opportunity was you worked hard all day 
so that you could eat the end. And then you died. I was actually listening to the story of the founder of Hyundai and his dad and grandpa and great-grandpa before him. They all were very, very poor farmers. And the the gentleman who eventually ended up starting a company based on his name, Hyundai, he said, I don't want to be like my father. There has to be more to life than a sore back and a hungry stomach my whole life. So think about it. This is generations of, of poor rural farmers in Korea. That's just one country of hundreds of countries that have or civilizations that have been around where rural poor farmers made enough barely to eat with a little bit of roof over their head. Uh, hopefully to keep their kids alive. Hopefully they're not getting sick and need a doctor because you're definitely not paying for any doctor. Now, I, I understand I'm I'm giving a little bit, not quite a hyperbole, I'm, I'm uh, caricaturizing poverty. But these places are real. Even today, I've been to these places. I've been to these places in Asia where you have a family of six. The father and the two oldest kids, who are only 12 and 9, by the way, go to work every day at a factory and the two younger kids with the mom stayed home worked in the garden or the mom would go to the landfill and dig out trash or anything they could sell or or eat right these are real people the these people live today and this isn't happening in america but imagine for these people food price goes up 15 percent well, they're barely making ends meet as it is. So that might mean they're just eating 15% less food. That means likely they're not getting a healthy, nutritious diet of the things they need. So so it's, it's leading to malnutrition, hunger, disease, and, and then it's just a downward spiral. They're not able to work as hard, which means they're not able to make as much money. You know, they might get sick. It, it's really terrible. And the World Bank estimates that poor households in like sub-Saharan African spend about 75 to 80% of their income on food just to live. So the food supply chain is a really big deal. And I think we should talk about it. Okay, so, so what's going on with the current food supply? Well, right now you've got the big four. China, India, United States, and Brazil. China and India are up there, but they're also the two highest in population. So they just have tons and tons of people. So basically, if they don't make a lot of food, they don't eat. United States and Brazil are two of the four most exporting countries. Number two, incredibly, is the Netherlands. And think of how little land mass they have compared to those other countries that we mentioned. The Netherlands is number two in exporting food goods. Obviously, in the United States, we produce enough food uh, to eat. And, and I believe it's called enough sustenance food. And then, obviously, there's like luxury foods that countries all over the world are exporting um, that, that aren't necessarily needed, but they're delicious. Like, Danielle and I eat mochi. That's not an American thing. I'm sure now American places make it, but it's like rice dough around ice cream and it's delicious. But so you got China, India, United States, and Brazil. These are the, the big four that do, do the most producing of food. They don't necessarily export the most, but they produce the most food. Now, 
things they have in common is, is latitude on the Earth's surface. They're in a great place for climate. So they're not like crazy desert hot all the time. And they're not super cold where they have really short growing seasons. And another thing is they have they have a lot of landmass. They have a lot of area to produce food. And then they also have lots of natural resources. You're talking about some of the most, if not the most, wealthy countries in terms of natural resources in the ground and water and vegetation and things like that. Then the big three for foods is corn or maize. I know it's not technically maize anymore, but a lot of the world and in official documents when I was studying this called it maize grain. So corn, rice, and wheat. Now wheat covers more area when we're farming it. Like it takes more area to grow wheat, but in terms of most tonnage, uh, it's a toss up between corn and rice, what's produced more. And it, and it seemed to go back and forth a little bit, but, but it is very close. So it's corn and rice and then wheat. Most common food sources, and that makes sense. You've got your grain, you've got your rice, and you've got your bread. So let's go through China a little bit. China produces the most food, but according to Investopedia, they have become more dependent on importing their food in recent decades. So they used to be really, really independent in their food and had good food storage, but that is no longer the case. Uh, China has only 10% of the world's arable land yet produces a quarter of the global grain output and leads the planet in production of cereals, cotton fruit, vegetables, meat, poultry, eggs, and fishery, fishery products, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. And despite the growth of China's agricultural output, it reportedly went from full, as I was saying, from full self-sufficiency in food production, and that was only in like year 2000. To here in, in 2020, it was importing a quarter of its food. That's a big deal because China's got, what, 1.2 billion people? Imagine a quarter of those people all of a sudden not getting food or everyone getting a quarter less food, which is almost a meal. Imagine everyone not getting lunch anymore. You know, that, that's a big deal. Um, so they are the world's leading importer of food. Uh, but they also export quite a bit. Um, I think they're number seven or something like that for exporting uh, for exporting food. But China is good at that. They are they are good at exporting things. So next we've got India. India is in its own category because food production is highly localized. And in 2020, they produced about 382 billion tons of food. But poorer farmers are doing most of the food producing. Actually, most of the farmers have less than two acres of land. Isn't that crazy? They have less than two acres of land. And so there's a lot of subsistence agriculture, which is basically if they don't grow enough food, they don't eat. Subsistence agriculture. Now you've got the United States. And this is, as you probably can guess, the highest food exporter, heavily doing soybeans, corn, they do other like oil, like vegetable oils and things like that. Um, and, and, and this is partially because the infrastructure, we've built a country for agriculture. Imagine when you start on the East Coast and then people started pushing West and pushing West and pushing West, except for the people that skipped all the way to the end and found the gold at the end of the rainbow in California. Everyone else in between, what they do? They farmed. So they built livelihoods decades after decades after generation after generation on farming so we have built a nation heavily 
on farming. Now, there are lots of other practices going on in the United States that that um, produce a lot of money. But farming is a huge one. And then you've got John Deere, who it, um, which was in the United States. And they are, I, I looked it up, they're a $121 billion company. They're the biggest agricultural producer in the world. And they're right here in, in the center of the United States, you know, headquartered in the Midwest. So you've got... Um, You've got really, really good infrastructure and you have the most usable and least broken up mollusol in the world. Mollusol is the type of soil that is uh, generally considered the best for uh, many forms of agriculture. Now, that doesn't mean you can grow oranges here in the Midwest because you still need your weather to be correct. But a mollusol allows you to be able to um, get a lot of nutrient plants that needed a lot of nutrients they can be planted in a mollusol. So there's a lot larger variety. And for instance, corn you grow in a mollusol is going to grow bigger with more kernels on it than if it grew, you know, in a desert somewhere. The other two, the ones in Argentina, and Argentina was up there for agriculture, but it's getting a little far south. So it starts getting a little colder there. Um, and the second is in Eastern Europe, with the majority of it actually being in Ukraine. Hmm, weird. So the United States exported about $177 billion in 2021, most of it going to Canada, Mexico, Japan, and China. And again, a lot of it being corn and soybeans, um, some meats, also some vegetable oil. The United States actually accounts for about 10% of all global food exports. And if you look at some of the countries I just named, particularly Mexico and China, they're some of the more populous countries in the world um, China being number one Mexico I believe being number 10 and then you've got Brazil and Brazil is the fourth largest producer so it produces less than all the other three but they do a lot of importing and they do a lot of exporting you know most of most of their food that gets imported comes from China and, and that's you know kind of like toys in the United States you know like most of our toys come from China well most of their or a lot of their food comes from China and, and Brazil is actually third in exports in the world. The United States, then the Netherlands, which is, again, crazy. Think about the landmass that the Netherlands had. It does not have near as much as India or China or the United States or Brazil. And it's second in export exported uh, food goods. That is incredible. Brazil is third and, and um, produces about $125 billion worth of food. And I believe it exported $85 billion worth, which is strange because it, it's exporting like a huge uh, chunk of what it produces. If you look at where a lot of the world's food is produced, that those are the countries that are like the heaviest hitters. Uh, now, the Netherlands is a big deal just because they actually don't produce near as much food as those places do, but they just export such a high percentage because they they produce so much and another part of it is they're they're in europe you know kind of surrounded by all these other countries that can give them food as well so trading between netherlands and let's say germany is a lot easier than trading between the united states and china right it's a train ride away as opposed to like a two-week ship ride the waste uh the u.s wastes about 221.3 million tons of food I believe that was in 2021. The UK was at 5.7, so not the United Nations, not the EU, just like Great Britain area. Uh, 5.7 million tons of food. China came in at about 100 million tons of food. 
Um, but the worldwide, oh, this was actually in 2019. The worldwide food waste was about a billion tons of food. And I heard recently on a podcast that I think last year's was like one, 1.06 billion tons of food or something like that. So, so it is going up. And the interesting thing is like people aren't getting enough to eat in the world. And there's like a billion tons of food. Obviously you're never going to get, um, food waste to nil. You'll never get it to nothing. Uh, but I, I imagine we could get it a lot less. Another thing too, that's really important that we need to touch on here while we're talking about the production of the world's food is small farms. 84% of all farms are less than five acres. And those five acre farms produce 35% of the world's food. Does that make sense? So 84% of the farms, not the farmland of the farms produce 35% of the world food on five acres or less. But get this, those 84% of farms only farm 12% of the land available as farmland in the world. So 12% of the world's farmland is producing 35% of the world's food. Now let's take the other side of that. 88% of the world's farmland is producing only 65% of the world's food that means there are people out there with some highly efficient food and we've talked about this right we've talked about the people in monterey california and um, there was one in new jersey i believe we talked about on a coffee time wednesday where they were producing tens of thousands if not a hundred thousand dollars worth of food on an acre or two right I, I i've got friends that they have a very efficient garden you know what i mean so it, it can be done it can be done Approximately 25% of the world's population, which is about 2 billion people, practice subsistence farming. Again, that's the farming where if you don't grow, you don't eat. 2 billion people. Well, yesterday, the CFS, the UN Committee of World Food Security, gave their yearly report and basically said there is hunger still in the world and there doesn't need to be. Why? If we if we're wasting so much and we're producing and exporting so much, what what's going on? Why is there hunger? That that's one of the two major questions. One, why is there hunger? Two, what the heck is going on with our supply our food supply chain? What does this say about it? Like this information, what what do you get? Okay, that's a bunch of percentages, a bunch of numbers. Why does this even matter? Well, one figure was saying that we actually produce fifty percent more food than the world needs. One and a half times of the food that is needed is produced, which means we have extra food, which is awesome. We just need to make sure that it's getting to the people that need it. Now, I'm not saying eat rice and beans and don't eat anything else and make sure everybody else has something. Everyone else is your responsibility. I'm just saying as a whole, let's look at how we're handling ourselves and maybe, maybe just 2% less. I know I for sure could stand to intake 2% less calories. I could probably stand to take in 20% less calories. I know, I know we've talked about it before, but just for today, we're going to ignore that a lot of the farming practices are actually uh, causing issues for future generations of people being able to eat. We're going to ignore that. I know it's a big deal, but uh, we're gonna, I want to focus solely on the current food chain. So let's look at who's doing it really well. From what we can tell, the Netherlands doing it really well. They're producing a lot more food than they need, and they're getting it out there. They're sending it out. Now, it's worth noting that Netherlands are like, like notoriously stingy. 
right? So, and I've been there. They're really, they're really, really cool people, and they've got such cool architecture. I do really like the Netherlands, but it, it, I assume based off of what I experienced while I was there, and you know, just some of the, you know, general stereotypes there are that that as a country they're a little more stingy, and then they like to sell uh, more of their things, which which is great for the world because moving money is good money. Stagnant money is, is useless. And, uh, the Western half of the world taking Netherlands as an example, the Western half of the world in the United States and Brazil, we are way better at agriculture. Now I don't want to be like, look how much better we are at agriculture. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, is we've had the technological advancements, um, to do agriculture, uh, and, and the eastern part of the world has it. Um, in, in India, a, a bunch of farmers, lots and lots, I, I don't know, I would love to say millions, but many farmers are still farming with cattle by hand, hoeing out weeds, which we do on our farm. So I guess, you know, maybe you could put us in that category. But they're farming with cattle, like hooking up plows to oxen or, um, or, or other forms of... Uh, um, burden cattle and, and pulling it through. They don't have giant tractors that they can pull through. So yeah, they have five acres. Five acres is all they can handle a, a lot of times. That, that's all that they can handle. That's how much they can physically get out and do in a 12 hour day or go to work and then come home and, and finish in an evening. They, that's what they can do. So they can do a lot less. And, um, and again, that they're, they're heavily, dependent on their food to eat. They're not expecting profit. They're not, they're not, uh, trying to go out there and, and, and make money to pay their phone bill. They're just trying to make sure their kids have something to eat so that they don't starve through the winter. I remember, um, I was, I was just telling you guys about the, the founder of Hyundai. Well, when he was a kid, if they didn't make grow enough food, but, and, and at the end of the winter, they ran out, they'd eat tree bark. They would just boil tree bark and grass. Like that happened in the 1900s. That wasn't that long ago. Now come back to the Western half of the world. We are making profit on every single acre. Trust me, everybody here is making sure that they're making a profit off of every acre. My goodness. Um, and it's creating what I would consider an upward spiral. Like they've got more profit, so they've got more money to invest in new technology so that they can get more profit, so they can invest more in new technology so that they can produce more. And actually that's really good for humanity being progressive in technology and running after and help trying to produce more for humans that is okay a belief system that i want to attack right now is that there's not enough for everybody that is the silliest thing that is the silliest thing we were just saying 1.5 times the amount of food that is needed in the world is produced there is enough for everybody i want to give a shout out to i will just say a family member adopted um a child and this child unfortunately um, and I love them dearly. They went without enough food when they were very little. So they were in a circumstance where they needed to be adopted. My family member stepped in and adopted them. And I remember being at the dinner table and, and that, um, that child that was adopted would regularly ask when the next meal was at the meal while, while they're eating, they would say, Hey, when's the next meal? When are we going to have more food? And my family member would just look at them and say, there's always more. I just want to say that's us right now. There is always more. There is always going to be enough. There might not always be enough for us to have every single thing we want, but there's absolutely enough for everything we need for sure.
So now that we got that out of the way and we're all on the same page that there is enough for everybody, that some people don't have to go without for others to have enough, right? That, that's, that, that's out of the way. Let's jump back in. So, so we're in, we're in an upward spiral in the Western, the Western hemisphere where we're going, um, getting more technology, uh, getting more food produced per acre, and um, we're able to eat enough, probably too much. The issue isn't how much food are we producing, it's more what are we doing with it when, after we produce it. So since we've become more efficient at farming and food is getting cheaper, then, then food should be cheaper everywhere. And you might be thinking like, oh, well, you know, milk was $3 a couple of years ago and, and now it's four twenty-seven. And And yeah, but again, we're not thinking about it in terms of dollars. We're thinking about it in terms of how long do we have to work for that much food because there's inflation and all those other things. You can't base everything on the dollar. Let's base it on something more important like time. Like time for uh, as long as you're ignoring everything Einstein taught us, we'll just pretend that time doesn't change and that uh, it is constant. So for we constantly right now, I am constantly right now paying about 12 and a half minutes for a gallon of milk. Yes, that is up from a couple years ago. And there was a little bit of a spike and we, and as we said, a little bit of a spike for me can be a huge spike for other people. Um, they, uh, in Turkey, when we experienced 12%, uh, inflation on food, Turkey experienced 70% inflation, 70%. They were countries, like I was saying in the sub-Saharan African desert that, uh, that were experienced like 300%. Uh, increase in food costs. That is wild. Three times the price for food. That, that That's just, that's terrible to think about. But what's causing these jumps? What's What in the food chain is actually causing food shortages, um, food price hikes for us and food shortages in other parts of the world? Well, in 2020, we had the first one since I've been an adult. And it was uh, that wonderful time we all remember as covid um, you know, we had that, there's a giant ship that like turned sideways in the Suez canal, stopping all the, these ships and stopping the loading docks. And then we had in the United States, we had, or no, in Canada, we had, uh, truck drivers who were protesting. And I'm not saying that was good or bad. I'm just saying they were protesting. So food wasn't getting shipped. Um, it, you had less people working in place. You weren't supposed to have as many people in a building. So less people were working in those buildings. So you had less, um, less workers there, which meant that there was less getting done, which means food wasn't getting moved around as much. And, uh, from my understanding and, and what I read food production actually didn't really change much during COVID, um, very small amount and, and almost negligible, uh, did the food production, but the food export and import was drastic. So, for instance, in China, who produces a lot of rice but uh, doesn't produce near as much corn, ate way less things with corn in it. And China was in a little bit of a predicament because their food supply only goes out, I think, a month and a half, whereas uh, supposedly a healthy economy country goes out four to six months. So if no food was supplied for four to six months, they would still be okay. There would still be enough food for everybody to eat in that country. And China is only about one and a half months. So COVID, that, that was really rough for them. Just like absurd things that were causing food shortages, right? Wild things. So that was the first one. 
But in 2022, and believe it or not, this one's actually been a bigger deal. Russia invaded Ukraine, and that was a doozy. So the Ukraine supplies a huge amount of corn. Um, along with Russia, it supplies over 50% of vegetable oil and seed oil. According to economicsconservatory.com, they also produce over a third of the wheat in the world. Again, Ukraine has one of the only mollusels in the world. So while we're producing tons and tons and tons of corn, they're producing a lot of corn and a third of the wheat in the world. So you mix the lack of agriculture output from the Ukraine because a lot of those farmers actually had to evacuate. They had to flee. Uh, and you you combine that with the fact that we put sanctions on Russia. So a lot of countries weren't even importing Russian food. All of a sudden, you have crazy price spikes. Imagine there are 10 people in a room and that we used to get 12 fish for dinner every night. We got 12 fish. Well, all of a sudden, now we're only getting eight fish. So what happens? The eight people in the room that can pay the most for the food get the fish. And the United States is the eight people in the room. You know who's not the eight people in the room? Impoverished countries in northern and, and central Africa, southeastern Asia. These places, large parts of rural India, these places aren't getting enough food. And now, don't forget that you've also got refugees in pockets in Europe. And it's already harder to get food right now. So you've got tons of people in one spot, having a hard time to get food. I know the church that I go to, we help support a organization that helps um, uh, feed these people because it, it's a big deal, you know, getting these people enough food. I mean, think about, and this is much less talked about, but Syrian refugees, them being able to get food right now is really, really difficult. And of course, we've not only got sanctions on russia because of food you've got sanctions on russia for oil so now for a while those gas prices and diesel prices were a lot higher meaning transporting goods was more expensive and who pays for more expensive transportation the end consumer Ugh, i hate that word i've told you guys that before i hate the word consumer I'll, a buyer the end buyer us we end up paying more for that food and again it's not that big of a deal for a lot of us it's a very big deal for some of us now there are a lot of other causes for food shortages and price hikes and, and one thing or another, but the real, it's hard to say it's a problem. A very complicated issue is food production consolidation. So more acres are owned by fewer people and more food produced by fewer countries. Why is this an issue? Because there are pros to it, but why is this an issue? Well, Think about it this way. If all the pears in the world were grown in, let's say, Argentina, and then all of a sudden, Argentina got some insect that came through and wiped out every single pear tree, well, then the whole world goes without pears. Now, instead of insects, think of it as a war, and instead of pears, think of it as wheat or bread or... Um, corn or oil. So now the world, it's not going fully without those things, but it's going with a lot less. And if there's, if there's less then the price goes up and if the price goes up, then some people aren't able to eat it. Now, again, I, I said there were pros to consolidation. Uh, one of the pros is efficiency. 
we're able to grow more per acre. And I talked about this. This is really good for humanity because when we progress in technology and we're able to get more food out there, less people have to work on growing food. And when less people can work on growing food, then you can do things like what my mom does. My mom is an educational psychologist that helps kids with dyslexia. She has gotten letters from all sorts of kids saying, or, or adults saying, thank you. I never would have been here in my career without you. You get people like, um, you get people like Spielberg, who's a genius in the movie industry. If he had to spend his whole life on a farm growing tomatoes so that he would have enough food to eat in the winter, or I guess probably not tomatoes, probably like potatoes, had enough potatoes to eat in the winter, then you wouldn't have great movies. You wouldn't have these great entertainment. Um, think about it, you know, not only entertainment, but the people that are out there um, creating new technology, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Bill Gates, all of these people, if they had to spend their whole life producing food, then they don't progress mankind. So the, the pros are significant. They're, they're huge. But we don't want those. We don't want to look at those pros so much and say, hey, consolidate pure consolidation where all the food in the world could be grown on one acre of land by one person and they distribute all of it. Like that kind of feels like the direction that we're going. Obviously, we are millions and millions and millions of acres, if not billions of acres away from actually getting there. And and obviously we never would get there. But, you know, it's a hyperbole to say if you consolidate it too much, you're you're in a really dangerous spot for one little domino to fall over. And then all of a sudden, 2 billion people don't eat. That is a really big deal. The food industry and the supply chain is fragile. We are doing lots and lots and lots and lots of things, right? We are doing many things wrong. What in the world is the solution? Well, here is the hard pill for us to swallow. And here's why. The solution is you. You are the solution. You are the solution. Do you remember the podcast episode we had with Angela uh, Ferraro Fanning? Towards the end of it, she said, I said, if you could do one thing and change the world, what would it be? She said, I would make everyone have to have a garden for a little bit. Because when you have a garden, you're connected to your food and where it comes from. You, it, it changes your mindset, changes how you interact with the world, changes how loving you are to people. Now let's go on a different route. More localized food. Not fully localized. Again, I, we're probably not growing rice in Iowa to make the mochi balls that my wife and I love to eat. But if we localize more of our food, for instance, if I went down the street to get my chicken or goat's milk, or if I went down the street to get pork at a local butcher shop, then, then there's less consolidation of Tyson chicken getting all of the money poured through them. And it's not, it's not that they're getting a lot of money. If people use money well, then, then have a lot of it. That's fine. Uh, the problem is they're getting their chicken cheaper at giant chicken plants. So if one of those chicken plants burns down, well, then all of a sudden, you know, Tyson doesn't have any, but if there are thousands of butcher shops with thousands of people keeping chick or millions of people keeping chickens, 
all around the United States, all throughout Iowa. And if I can't go to one because uh, coyotes raided their place, then I just go down the street to another one. You know, if you have a lot of those little uh, spots, then you have a much more secure food system. In World War II, the United States put out the propaganda that said, hey, we grow chickens, um, help help the efforts in the war grow chickens. Why? Because the United States is much more secure if they know their food source is secure, if they know they don't, they knew they weren't getting it from Europe. They're not importing anything from Europe. In fact, they had to export a bunch of stuff for Europe, uh, from the United States to Europe to help feed people over there, to help feed the soldiers. And so, so the, the, there's a security in, in people doing themselves. What does that mean? If everyone's growing chickens, that means everyone's spending 20 minutes to feed them. If everyone's spending 20 minutes to feed them times 300 million people in the United States, you know how many millions of minutes that is every day? You know how many cars that aren't invented? So not absolutely everyone can have chickens. Just, you know, more people should have chickens. So I would say pick one thing. Pick a garden. Pick chickens. Or at the very least... Buy it locally. Go to a local book butcher shop. Go to a local farmer's market. Buy your things there. Another thing that that does is that means you're going to pay more for your cucumber. They can grow it so cheap in California that even though they have to ship it all the way here, you're going to pay more than the local farmer that or for the local farmer's food than from California. So if your budget is a hundred dollars a week for food and you're having to pay more, that might mean a little less food. Or maybe it means a little less going out to see movies. Or maybe it means a little less uh, consuming of going out to eat. Or uh, what my wife and I do, we, we splurge on, we love cookies and cookie dough. My goodness, too many cookies, too much cookie dough. Maybe it's less of that. Maybe you buy a 2019 truck instead of a 2022 truck, you know? So that's what I mean by you are the solution. We are the solution. And here's what we know is governments don't make policies to change systems until big money is behind it. And big money's not behind it until consumers and buyers and people that spend money are behind it. That is you. So we have an issue in the world and it is, it is solvable. It is not easy, but it is very simple. It's you. It's your mind. It's how you think. It's how you shop. It's what you spend your time doing. And we know, we know this, that conservation, not only conservation, but apparently food security in the world happens one mind at a time. Almost forgot to give a quick shout out to all of my sources, economicsobservatory.com, investopedia.com, tractorgyan.com, wikipedia.com, forbes.com, foodtank.com, globalagriculture.com, fao.org, homework.study.com, I know, kind of weird, news.thin-inc.net, and worldatlas.com. Also want to give a really awesome shout out to the book, The Swine Republic 
which we are hopefully going to be interviewing the author, Chris Jones. Very interesting guy. Not that we even agree with all of it, but his book sent me on this rabbit trail with our podcast today. And I want to thank that man 